It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello, I'm Kay Winnigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Carly. Thanks for joining us on the BZE Science and Solutions Show. This show is coming to you via the studios of 3CR Melbourne and is syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the show. Today we're talking to Asad Razouk, who heads two companies based in Singapore called Renewum and Syndicatum Renewable Energy. Syndicatum is a developer, owner and operator of clean energy projects in key markets that are perennially short of electricity, particularly in non-urbanised areas. Renewum is striving to incentivise green growth and bring clean energy to markets everywhere by providing renewable energy developers with reliable revenue streams. Hello, Asad. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Kay. Good to be here. Firstly, Asad, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your history and what got you interested in renewable energy? Yeah, what's there not to be interested about, right? You can try and make a difference on the front lines while battling climate change and air pollution and making some money or trying to make some money at the same time. So I got there via a business that seeked to abate greenhouse gases. So we set up a business to try and capture greenhouse gases, in other words, pollution, and turn them into revenue. And as we developed that business in all corners of the globe, Uh, renewables were emerging and we pivoted into renewables when we had a crash in the carbon credit markets that were related to that greenhouse gas abatement business. And so we uh, had some assets that were producing renewable energy and so we pivoted and focused on those and on an Asia platform by and large, so to do renewable energy in Asia. What led you to Asia? The business was always mostly in Asia. We had a U.S. business. What led us to Asia is very simple. If you look at greenhouse gas emissions globally, the top markets are the the top polluters, in other words, are the United States, China, and the rest of Asia. So what we did is we set up shop in the United States, we set up shop in China, we set up shop in the rest of Asia. And the Asia business was just faster to grow than the American business because in the United States, the global carbon markets did not make an entry at the same time as the rest of the world. They were delayed. So we ended up with more of a business in Asia than the U.S., And eventually we sold the U.S. business and focused 100% on Asia. Asad, you 
you're head of two companies, Syndicatum Renewable Energy and Renewum, and we'll talk about Syndicatum's work a little bit later on, but I was very intrigued reading about how Renewum is focusing on a global opportunity to significantly uh, increase global investment in renewables through the monetization of environmental attributes. Does that mean that there aren't any other companies doing a similar thing or is it that you're actually focusing on the digitization of this? Let's take a step back just to place that business in, in context. Today, as you know, there are many companies, actually more than 1,500 companies with combined revenues of 12.5 trillion that have set or pledged to set net zero targets. In other words, they promised that their businesses will not generate any carbon emissions by a certain date. And it's not just companies, by the way. You uh, would have heard that in Asia, China a few weeks ago set a net zero target by 2060. It was followed very quickly by Japan and then very quickly by South Korea and Hong Kong. Now we're all waiting for Australia to follow, although uh, one can be somewhat pessimistic about the pace. It's It's the same concept, but at a corporate level. So corporations are promising to go net zero carbon by a certain date. Now to do that, they have to, they have various tools to do that. And one of the tools is renewable energy. But not every company can be directly powered by renewable energy or can directly power its buildings and factories and data centers and uh, other assets or mines, for example, by renewable energy. And so there is an element that it needs to offset. In order to offset it, it basically buys a certificate from somebody else who's done it somebody else who's generated the renewable energy and sold it. And that environmental attribute certificate, so to speak, is a global currency which Renewum is trying to digitize and globalize in order for it to be easily available to all these companies that want to zero out their, what's called their scope two emissions. So emissions from their energy usage, as opposed to emissions from, for example, their supply chain. So we have scope one, which is energy generation, and scope two, which is energy usage, and scope three, which is um, sub-suppliers. Yeah, absolutely. And so Renewum, in effect, is trying to provide a digitized global currency that allows you to offset your scope two emissions specifically, whoever you are, wherever you are, in a simple, reasonably efficient form, using the blockchain effectively as a tool to guarantee integrity and verification uh, of sources of energy so that you're sure that it's solar or wind and you're sure that it's been produced and exported and you're sure that there is no double counting. So Australia has what's called renewable energy certificates and, you know, they're they're issued um, according to the amount of power that's generated. 
And I can understand that in terms of a national certification, but how would it work internationally between countries? There would need to be some sort of standardization, I'd imagine. That, that's an excellent question, actually, because um, one of the critical facts behind Renewum is you cannot get a Renewum token if you are awarded a renewable energy credit by law because then that would be double counting. So in fact, renewables are trying to plug the gap everywhere where there is no renewable energy certificate legislation. The standardization is relatively straightforward because effectively you get one renewable token for each megawatt hour, which is a physical commodity of electricity that you've exported from solar or from wind. You talk about smart meters monitoring the energy that's produced. How does that guarantee that it's actually green energy that's being produced? Well, let's say you've got a solar power plant in Vietnam. At the initial point when the project signs up to Renewum, you have to have an element of physical inspection in addition to desk-based inspection. Because obviously you've got to make sure that the project exists and that it does what it says. So if, you know, that it's in reality a solar project, for example. Connecting the meter then is relatively straightforward because all you're doing is you're uploading data uh, to the cloud. And as long as that uploading occurs, everything after that is quite secure. The other company is Syndicate and Renewable Energy. Can you tell us about the company, where it is based, and the sort of projects that you undertake? Sure. Syndicatum Renewables is headquartered in Singapore, and it's in the business of developing, building, and operating uh, solar, utility-scale solar, and onshore wind projects in Asia, with a current focus in Southeast Asia and India. That's what we do on a day-to-day basis. And we are looking broader next year. In other words, we are going to be looking at North Asia, Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea, for example, because one of the key changes, I would say, in this part of the world over the course of literally the last 12 months, you know, almost almost correlated with the coronavirus pandemic is that renewables appear to have finally taken off in this part of the world, which has traditionally been a laggard. And so we anticipate a lot more activity across Asia Pacific over the next few years than we've seen over the past two or three years, for example. Speaking of Australia, you know, Australia is focused on developing large-scale and rooftop solar and wind farms as they are such cost-effective options. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the renewable energy considerations and possibilities for countries in Asia? Yes, yes, of course. Um, I would note, by the way, one important thing about Australia. Um, The Australian renewable energy industry is very much citizen-driven, and private sector driven. Imagine if it was actually properly supported 
by the federal government. Australia will be, I mean, whether they like it or not, it will be a renewables super major and it will be exporting green hydrogen. It's just a question of whether it's going to take, you know, a decade to get there or five years or, you know, faster. And so there are great things happening in Australia in renewable energy and in green hydrogen. Um, and I'll only, only cite, you, you know, a couple of things. One is uh, Fortescue Mining. Fortescue Mining basically announced the largest ever ambition in terms of renewable energy in the history of the world. I mean, nobody made an announcement before of the scale that they did. And then, of course, as you know, there's also a project to potentially export uh, solar power from Australia all the way to where I'm sitting now, which is Singapore, which is also one of the most ambitious projects of its kind. Now, uh, uh, however, policy support is missing. And I think it's just a question of time before everybody wakes up to the opportunity. So then if you then move into Asia, you know, what you see is there's four Asias, really. Let's divide Asia into four pieces. You've got China, which is absolutely doing everything that, it's can, that it can to push renewables as fast as possible. And it's not just renewables in the case of China. It's electric cars, electric scooters, electric buses, rare earth metals, and the production and manufacturing of batteries, of solar panels, of wind turbines, etc. I mean, I think what they're doing in China is actually quite amazing in this space. Then you've got India, which is also doing absolutely everything that it can to deploy renewables at pace. And both countries are characterized by kind of a top-down effort. So very strong government support, which you can contrast with the situation in Australia, for example. Then the third Asia, so Asia one is China, Asia two is India, Asia three is North Asia. So that's Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea. You know, these countries haven't been that good in pushing either green or electrification or renewables. However, again, this year, a lot changed, and uh, that's the top-down will expressed through the country's net-zero announcements, uh, which hopefully will get them moving. You might have seen a story a couple of weeks ago about Sony. Sony went to the Japanese government to say to them, look, if you don't get on the renewables bandwagon faster, we're going to take our factories out of Japan. And so that combination of top-down policy through net zero announcement and then bottom-up through push by corporates and citizens, I think is happening in North Asia, which leaves us with Southeast Asia, where the, the headline is that it's really the laggard in renewables globally. However, things are improving. In case you've missed it, we're talking with Asad Razouk, CEO of Renewum and Syndicatum Renewable Energy.
Asad, can you tell us a little bit about the the type of renewable energy in Southeast Asia that's available? I know in Japan, for instance, wind energy could be a very big renewable energy supplier. But in Southeast Asia, there's still quite a few coal mines and coal-fired power plants. Singapore, I think, is mainly gas. What other opportunities do they have? Right. So let's start with Vietnam. Vietnam witnessed a solar miracle because it went from an installed capacity of zero to an installed capacity of six gigawatts in 18 months. That And that all happened in the last two years. So brand new story, so to speak, with a strong emphasis on solar power and onshore wind initially, which is now also going to be followed by offshore wind. So the the general answer to your question is similarly, Myanmar, Malaysia, uh, and the Philippines all have renewables industries that are really anchored first and foremost around onshore solar. So utility scale solar. And then you add to that uh, onshore wind, and eventually you add to that offshore wind. And that's going to be the story across Southeast Asia in every country without exception. Singapore, of course, is tiny. It's and therefore, it's quite constrained on what it can do itself. However, Singapore could plug into a solar grid that might be regional or even coming from Australia. That's, you know, so Singapore is a bit of a footnote. It's more the other countries that matter just in terms of population and, and scale of potential deployment. And in all of them, it's going to be onshore solar, utility scale solar first, followed by onshore wind, and then offshore wind at the tail end. I'm interested in Singapore because you mentioned earlier about that large $20 billion project to build a 4,000 kilometre electric pipeline undersea to Singapore from Darwin. And there's possibly another one that's being mooted from Western Australia to somewhere in Asia, Indonesia possibly. The attraction there, as you were just saying, might be in actually plugging in to a a grid that covers Southeast Asia, not just Singapore. Is there any discussion of that at the moment? There is a discussion of that at the moment within the context of the ASEAN Association of Countries. So they are discussing the potential for a regional renewables grid of some sort, or at least the ability to export electricity between countries, because obviously that's the thing that would make the most sense. What would make the most sense to Singapore is to export solar power from its neighbor, Malaysia. But sometimes it's easier, apparently, to negotiate with Australia than it is between neighbors. That happens in many parts of the world. And so I think the judgment is still out on how it will evolve. But there's no question that as you add more and more utility scale solar across the region, as costs continue to drop, you're going to get into effectively producing massive amounts of 
cheap clean energy and everybody will want to tap into that and so you then build the export infrastructure that's needed to move that energy around the other issue that i see is that southeast asia is made up of many small islands with potentially not necessarily a lot of land and certainly not a, a grid connecting each other would it be a good idea to look at standalone renewable energy projects where they become self-sufficient with their own supply rather than looking at a, a larger grid? A hundred percent. And that is a very, very good point. There are literally tens of thousands of islands between Indonesia and the Philippines alone. They have 20,000, you know, of which there are several hundred that are uh, relatively, uh, let's say, sizable. The problem today is actually uh, the problem you raise or the issue, the opportunity that you raise is highly relevant because at the moment these islands are importing very expensive diesel on polluting ships to fire generators that are increasing air pollution and worsening climate change locally, all of which is being done at factors you know it's like three four five six times more expensive than actually installing self-sufficiency from a renewable energy perspective on these islands and it's been a very frustrating area for many people because it's obvious that they should have a combination of solar and wind maybe with some pump hydro type storage in order to solve that problem but you then run into real life barriers. And real life barriers in this case is a combination of a diesel mafia and a shipping mafia whose livelihoods basically are threatened. And one of the problems often is that these mafias are actually armed. And so therefore, it just stops progress. It's incredible that Indonesia, uh, 270 million people, you know, on the equator, across all these islands has less installed solar capacity than Finland, which is population, you know, five and a half million in the Arctic. I mean, if Finland can do solar, surely, how can Finland do more solar than Indonesia? I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever, but it is what it is. You know, realistically, though, you have got to believe that it's going to change and that it's going to change soon because it just cannot continue not to make sense like this forever. There are a lot of private investors, and I think you referred to them earlier, in Australia. So, you know, it is the private investors that are creating renewable energy projects here, not the federal government. Is that similar in Southeast Asia or anywhere in Asia? Is there a lot of investment ready to go? It's much more difficult in countries where you have one electricity monopoly. So if you have one electricity monopoly, which you have to work with, you're, if you're effectively sidelining a lot, of what the a lot of what the private sector can do. In the Philippines, for example, which has a deregulated electricity industry, the private sector is very present and deploying more and more renewables very quickly. In Vietnam, where there was political will for that single monopoly to get renewables done, 
it happened. In Indonesia, by contrast, where you also have a monopoly, so one company that controls all the electricity in the country, the absence of political will means that that company just isn't moving on renewables in the way that you would expect it to. So, so it, it differs between country and the private sector in many cases is boxed out. So is there anything else, are there any other new projects or anything else that you can tell us about that's happening within those countries? Well, the most exciting story in Asia Pacific, in my view, over the next decade, is the electrification of everything and everything that comes with that. You know, everything from your electric buses to your electric cars to two-way charging to an upgrading of the grid and renewable energy as one component as well, of course. It's that it's the transformation of effectively lifestyles into clean fueled lifestyles, which is, I think, the most exciting story uh, in this part of the world over the next decade, because there is an enormous amount to do. But at the same time, you're not necessarily having to replace all your infrastructure, since a lot of your energy demand is continuing to rise. And many people are still under served in terms of electricity, which is a very different story than what you have, for example, in the West, where in effect, everybody has all the electricity that they need already. And so you're replacing infrastructure rather than building necessarily incremental infrastructure as we are doing here. And I think clean energy fueled lifestyles is just a massive economic opportunity which is multifaceted for certainly for Australian you know businesses in this part of the world but also for domestic private sector capital as you rightly pointed out before locally in every country in ASEAN. Well that's a good note to finish the conversation on. Where can our listeners find out more about what we discussed? Well they can always start with the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast. I've got 43 episodes there so far, and they are packed with this type of information. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Asad. My pleasure, Kay. It was lovely to be here. Thank you. That was Asad Brazuk, CEO of Renewum and Syndicatum Renewable Energy. The Beyond Zero Science and Solutions Show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.